So we are back. Uh, new episode is a couple of days late this week, but there's been a lot going on. Um, how you been doing? Pretty good. I'm excited to be back and happy to do part two of our cult episode. Uh, I knew that we were going to have to run over because it's just there's too much good stuff here. You know, you got we had to have two episodes. Well, it's. It, and people really liked the last one and they want more. And then I had a couple of people ask me, so when are you going to talk about Mormons? How um, long have I been begging on, you to talk about I'm Mormons? I'm going to spring this on Hillary now. So next week, I think we're going to start Mormons. I don't know if we'll be able to finish the Mormons in one episode. You can only start the Mormons. But I think we're going to do the Mormons. And after that, Scientology, I think we're just going to stick with the religions and cults thing for a little while because i'd also like us to talk about the second great awakening like yeah really talk about the religions that come out of it because one of the groups we talk about today is a direct descendant right of that second great awakening and you know what i think for an american history podcast like having a really solid understanding of these groups really helps explain so much of american culture Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's, I mean, obviously I like it because it's really like, oh, wow, that's scandalous or that's funny or that's weird or something. And like, I'm not trying to just make it like this licentious podcast, but I do genuinely believe that to have a solid understanding of these groups means to have a better understanding of American culture. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's, let's get right into it. Uh, today we're continuing our cults of the 20th century. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff. And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast. So, so how's the weather? there in Mississippi. The weather's really nice. I don't have anything um, calamitous to report. It's just very nice, sunny out, not too humid at all, really. Um, just just pleasant, really nice day. What about you? How's it going in Southern California? Well, so I drove home from LA last night. Um, and when I got to Oceanside, which is about halfway from where I was coming from to home, uh, it started raining. And when it first started, I was like, huh, what is that? Maybe the car in front of me used their like washer or something. But then more stuff came and it's like, holy crap, it's raining. And then it rained hard for a little bit and then it kind of stopped. I was like, oh, that was interesting. But then last night it started raining here again. It rained all night and it's rained this morning on and off. My goodness. May rain is very rare in San Diego. Were you (laughs) tempted to pull over on the side of the freeway? Put on your emergency flashers. Wait for the storm to pass. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's, it's, I went out because I had to go pick Harvey up uh, from the doggy place this morning because he stayed there last night. So I was going to be home late. And it was like raining. And I was like, where's my umbrella? Do I even have an umbrella in the car? Um, It's May rain is very weird, although it's not unheard of. And a lot of times, um, when we have kind of dry winters, we have these people always hope for a miracle May where we make up all our rain deficit in May. I mean, there was pretty good rain. Um, weather in San Diego. Wow. Have you swept your forests yet? Um, no. Have you swept no, the forest we, forest No, yet? we have not swept the forest. Um, Dang it. See you guys? It's We're going to burn in November. That's a Donald Trump joke. Yes, it is. Um, because <laughs> the Scandinavians sweep their forest, which they don't, by the had way. Had you swept your forest, you wouldn't have had wildfires anyway. <laughs> yes. That's exactly how that works. <laughs> Bringing back a classic. <clears throat> yes. Um, so today we're doing two cults. They just are, right? There's straight up cults. There's like one of them comes out of a religion, but the other is just. I don't know if you find it it. comes out of religion too, though. It does. Did you find the Heaven's Gate website? Oh, I sure did. The original one. It's it's so nineties. It's it's like a kind of like a 
time capsule right? yeah I mean, like, I, it's really kind of neat i to wonder go. who's keeping it up and like someone does keep it up so i saw a reddit thread where someone emailed and was like does anyone check the site and like yes we do I'm like whoa so it's former members who didn't end up participating in the suicide obviously they do keep up the website but they don't keep up like making it look you know not like so, it's from the 90s. Heavensgate.com. Go there and revisit the internet of the 90s. It's kind of cool. It's got like the flashing font. It's got this star background. It looks like it's pulled off of MySpace. Oh, gosh. Not even. Like even before that. No, but it looks very similar to MySpace. It, it does. Yeah. I mean, it's... So doing- the, the HTML code is very flashy. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's flashy. I thought it was a gay pride So let's get started me. with... <laughs> it does look like that. Um, it's got well, let's get started with Heaven's Gate. Well, because... so we've got Heaven's Gate, and we've got the David Crush and the Branch Davidians. So you want to start with Heaven's Gate first? Well, because they were first. I mean, well, kind well, well, the Branch no. Davidians do go back, the, and the Branch Davidians exit before Heaven's Gate exits. Okay, then let's do Branch Davidians. Okay. Okay. So I'm on the Heaven's Gate website again, and it is it it's just, very. I've got it very pride. Just, so I was when we talked about Heaven's Gate. I was trying to find an open source like spacey ethereal music to play mm. when you were describing what they believed, and I was like, it'll just make her laugh though. Um, yeah. But it is hilarious. Uh, it is. So Branch Davidians, and so there is a group of Branch Davidians still active. And you yes. can go and to bdsda.com. So it's the General Association of Branch Davidian Seventh-day Adventist. And they spend most of their site saying how they are not associated with David Koresh. Right. Well, you wouldn't want to be. But they're, you're right. I mean, this, this cult, this offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist is very much related to religions that came out of the second great awakening. Mm -hmm. And you can kind of chart that lineage right straight on Mm -hmm. down. Um, But this branch of the seventh day Adventist known as the branch Davidians was founded in 1955. So kind of, we're going to kind of, right. I mean, it could be 1922. Some people say 22 or 23, right? Right. So, so they come out of Adventism and there's this guy, William Miller, and we'll talk when we do our episode on the Second Great Awakening. I think we're going to talk a lot more about him. But the Millerites kind of followed Miller's teachings, and they believed that... So Miller had said Jesus was coming back. The second advent of Jesus mm-hmm. would be between 1843 and 1844. Um, obviously, that didn't happen. But So you have these people who followed him, and eventually you get this group of branch Davidians and they're founded by this um, uh, guy from Bulgaria, um, Victor Hotev. And he writes these books and he's a, he's a lay person too. He's not like uh, a minister or anything. And he writes these things called the shepherd's rod. And he said that the seventh day Adventist church needed to be reformed. Um, and fast forward, we get this guy, David Koresh, and we kind of fill in the spots here, but David Koresh is this kind of young, charismatic figure, um, who eventually takes over the Waco kind of compound of the Branch Davidians. The the compound is called Mount Carmel. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he actually briefly... Did he marry Lois? I believe so. So he married the wife of the former leader. Wait, no, he just he just had sex with her because he wanted it because the baby was going to be this was going to be Jesus. So this is like really ballsy of this guy to go into this group and he starts sleeping with the group leader's wife, who's a lot older than he is, more than 20 years older Mm -hmm. than he is. And um he kind of does this to like consolidate or show some level of power. And then he ends up, who he ends up marrying is a 14 year old girl. Well, cause he who, said initially God wanted him to marry Rodan's Roden's wife and have mm-hmm. the baby that was going to be Jesus. But then he changes and says, actually God wants me to marry this 14 year old. 
Mm -hmm. And this is something that I want to point out heavily from the very start. There is rampant sexual abuse and misconduct that's taking place within this sect. Well, I think that's, um, I mean, when you, I, I think we got to this last time as well. I think that right there is a key indicator what you're in as a cult. When yeah, sex when and sexual abuse is a thing. Now, I will let people draw their own conclusions about what contemporary religious groups that might impugn then. Right. Um, but I think anytime sexual abuse um, and is tolerated and facilitated or, or, or encouraged, encouraged even. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always, you know, of women. I mean, it, that's the other thing about it. It's like there are a lot of women who are not at the helm of these groups. They're not in power. They're not part of the leadership. And this is where Heaven's Gate differs. And I'm, I'm excited to talk about how there's there's actually a differ, yeah. different kind of vibe here. And we'll get into that. But a lot of times in cults, it's like women don't have a lot of say in what's going on, but then they end up being the ones who are exploited and abused the most mm -hmm. by the leaders. So, and we, this goes for Jim Jones, Charles Manson, etc. So back to the history of the the Branch Davidians, really quickly. So, Hotef writes this Shepherd's Rod, and the biggest things he said is that he's a messenger of God, and that there's a scroll described in the Book of Revelation, chapter four, and that there's writing on it that he knows what it says now. And um, he wants to reveal that secret information and that he also wants to gather a very small group of Christians, purify them of all this contamination of what churches have done. Um, and it would cause the second coming of Jesus, the downfall of Babylon, the end of the world, and the kingdom of David would be established, hence Davidian. And he, up until 1930, or 42, I guess, is when he officially breaks. Up until 42, for almost 20 years, a little less than 20 years, he he stays within the Seventh-day Adventist church. And it's only in 1942 that he kind of breaks. Um, do you know why he breaks? Why did he break away? Because the Seventh Day Adventist would not give conscientious objector status to members during World War II. Oh, oh, interesting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So he selects the names Davidian Seventh Day Adventist, or they become known as the Branch Davidians because of this whole thing of bringing about the Kingdom of David. Uh, and things are pretty kind of, uh, you know, he's mildly successful recruiting members, but not wildly successful. Um, you know, he, in 35, 1935, he had founded this Mount Carmel Center in Waco, Texas, just outside Waco, Texas. Um, he dies in 1955, and his wife actually takes over briefly. And this is what we see a couple of times in this group, is that a man will die, the wife will take over for a brief period, and she actually moves the location a little bit. Sounds like Southern politics. And then she prophecies about the end of the world um, and says the end of the world will culminate with the kingdom of David being established on April 22nd, 1959. So these people are living in this. Hundreds of people moved to the compound at that point. Well, and they're living constantly in this fear or anticipation of end times. Like they literally think that they're living out that, you know, Christ's second coming is right around the corner and that they are all ready and willing and eager to die fighting for, you know, what they believe to be the second coming of Christ, like what's going to be, what was prophesied or what's predicted in the book of revelation. And so when we start thinking about how they meet their end, it also starts making a whole lot more sense about like the FBI is trying to negotiate as if like a normal hostage kind of a situation. It's like you're trying to negotiate with people who literally think that you're the antichrist mm -hmm. and that they're fighting for their own, you know, for everything for eternity is what they think they're fighting for. Right. So it's like the idea, like setting up this, 
story, this history and thinking about trying to get into their mindset that by 1959, they actually think that they're living out end times. It starts to make a lot more sense when you get to the end result, right? Mm -hmm. Well, so April 23rd, 1959 comes around and nothing's happened. And most of the members leave. Um, some of them go and form a rival Davidian group called the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. This is where this starts to remind me of Monty Python, Life of Brian. I mean, you've got all these rival groups that always that almost sound the same, but are just slightly different. Um, Hotef uh, Florence dies. And pretty quickly, you get this new guy who emerges, uh, Benjamin Roden. And he actually renames the group, the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventist, and he says that he's David's successor, King David's successor. Um, and they, you know, again, mildly successful recruiting people, but not to like a huge number. He dies um, in 78, and we can like talk about why he dies in 78. Um uh but George George Roden dies in 78? No, uh Benjamin. 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 Okay. Um oh George. Yeah, George is the one we don't want to talk about George's death. George or or George's incarceration. Later. Right. Yes. Um, so his son was supposed to take over, and there's actually a power struggle between Lois, his wife, and George. And meanwhile. You get this young guy that comes in, Vernon Howell, and he actually joins the group to do like odd jobs on the compound. And he ends up changing his name to David. David Koresh. Um, and he starts, I mean, here's the thing is he's a fairly attractive guy and he's evidently very charismatic and he starts to really challenge George in the group. And the dynamics um, uh, to the point where um, he and uh, George challenges him to a contest to see who can raise a dead body. Oh, this is so freaking funny to me. But I think he was setting him up. I think David was setting oh, George absolutely up. Absolutely set him up. So Rodin so goes and digs up a corpse. Yeah, because they're going to try to raise this corpse from the dead. And David, meanwhile, goes to the authorities and says, this guy is exhuming bodies. Hey, this guy's tampering with the dead. And they say, it's well, you kind of brilliant. And they say, well, you don't have evidence. So George, David takes some of his followers and they sneak back onto the compound. Yeah. Uh, this kind of gunfight erupts. Uh, I think George actually shoots somebody dead. Um. But eventually the police show up and it's like, yeah, he exhumed a body. And they filmed it, right? Yeah. They, their intention was to go there and to film it and say, hey, this guy's tampering with dead people. Like, this is weird. But yeah, he like sets him up for it. So, and then, yeah, the guy gets so the success. Roden's imprisoned. And I think it's in a psychiatric hospital as well. I think he's put in a psych ward. That would make so sense. So David Crush takes over. And what does he reveal while they were manufacturing amphetamines illegally there's a large quantity of pornography so nice. I, I mean and this is how you see a lot of cults function is the when there's a change in power they just destroy the reputation of the previous leader Right. And he's like, I'm going to come in and, and, but he starts saying, you know, I'm going to come in and clean things up, but also I'm the Messiah. Yeah. So he's not even saying, right. Yeah. Unlike, uh, you know, uh, Benjamin Roden, who said he was King David's successor, David Koresh is just saying, I am the Messiah. Yeah. He's like, you, the second coming has happened because here I am. Right. Yes. Oh, I found my notes about when Roden commits murder. He splits okay. his roommate's head open with an axe oh, in 1989. Oh, don't do that. But he was found insane. And he's sentenced to Big Spring State Hospital. And he dies in 1998, right? Of a heart attack after he yeah. escaped. Yeah. Um, so in 1985, uh, David Koresh kind of really starts actively recruiting. Um, and they target people who are members of the main you can't call Seventh-day Adventist mainline of the Seventh-day Adventist church. 
because that's an important point. They are also a branch group. It's like a branch of a branch, right? Yeah. Uh, so by 1993, spring of 1993, there were 130 people living at the Waco compound, and it was multiracial and multi-ethnic, including 45 African-American members. That's always an interesting point to me because it's similar to Jonestown. It, 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 it sounds. And if you look at David Koresh and you look at the way people talked about him, it's the same way people talked about Jim Jones. Um, so they start calling themselves the students of the seven seals. Um, <clears throat> and then we get to the story. Some people may know, and some may have not much knowledge of it all, but there were reports that there was an illegal stockpile of weapons and ammunition at the Waco compound at Mount Carmel. So ATF uh, launches a raid against the Branch Davidians. Um, and this is in uh, the late spring of 1993. There's a gunfight. Well, it's in the early. It's in the early. It's in February. That oh, it's in February. It, yes. Right? Yeah, February. Because it becomes this because there's many, many days yeah. standoff, right? So, but in this initial confrontation, there is a gunfight that takes place. Oh, it's on February 28th. And you get, what is it, you get two, two agents are killed and four Branch Davidians. And 16 agents were wounded, five Branch Davidians um, were killed. It's a massive failure. ATF goes to execute a search warrant. And so remember, they're kind of in the middle of nowhere. This Mount Carmel compound is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so the ATF is like heading out to do this raid and they're lost. There's a couple of, not them, the, excuse me, there are reporters, I believe, who get kind of lost because it's like this big caravan of people going out to confront the Branch Davidians. Um, and they, this van stops and talks to a postal worker and says, hey, where's that Branch Davidian compound? The ATF's about to raid it. The postal worker goes, oh, it's right down the road. Well, the postal worker was a part of the sect. Mm -hmm. was a part of it. So he calls David Crush and is like, hey, the ATF is like rolling in today. So they load up. They think that they are literally in a fight for the world, right? Like yeah. for eternity. For They think that this is the ultimate battle of good versus evil, like that the book of Revelation predicted. And so they there are a lot of firearms there, right? The ATF was correct and about David that. David Crush gets wounded in this, which I think only magnifies their, oh, this is like when the Romans hurt Jesus. Right. Yeah, he calls his mother and leaves a message and says, like, I got shot. I'm, you know, fighting for my life here. He was not in good shape, but this was insane. Like, this is kind of an insane situation because because so many ATF agents were wounded and killed, the FBI comes in and starts taking over and they don't, they don't successfully raid the compound on that day. And so they end up in a standoff with the Branch Davidians. A siege. A siege. Yeah, is what some people call it. And there's and this is where what happens in Waco starts to feed in the modern militia group movement. So we talked about this in a in a previous episode, and I would like to go into that a little bit. It's like the idea that the federal government just completely overreached. Ruby here. Ridge and Waco are right. the two things that feed into Oklahoma City. Well, that's what Timothy McVeigh says, yeah. right? He yeah. bombs Oklahoma City on the anniversary of the um so what culminated in this giant fire and deaths of people the branch davidians um he carries out his attack on oklahoma city one year later as what he described as retribution or vengeance for the, to the federal government mm -hmm. for what they had done to the branch davidians so the siege takes place and and this is the thing is this group had gone under the radar to almost everybody in the United States up until this moment. But during that siege, and I remember this, how on the news every night, they were like, here's the siege. 51 days it lasted. We start to learn things 
so what has David Koresh been doing in the compound? What is what's what are relationships look like inside the compound? So they are celibate except for him. And he's they're very controlling over sex, but he ends up with upwards of 20 wives and dozens of children. And so what's to me, what's so tragic about this situation is there were a lot of innocent people in that compound. A lot of kids were in there. They had no, they had no agency over what was going on at all. They were being abused and they were being held hostage. And some of his wives were 12 or 13. Oh my God. When he had sex with them. Oh my God. It's disgusting. Yeah. And there are the reports that there's kind of very harsh corporal punishment that goes on inside the compound. Beatings and things like that. Um, And here's the thing. Koresh doubles down on this apocalyptic view and he says, you know, we are we are fighting, like you said before, it's good versus evil. And we have to do whatever we can to prevail. So. The final siege on April 19th after of 1993, seven weeks. after seven weeks, and, and they're constantly wall to wall coverage and they're constantly on the telephone with Koresh and yeah, trying to like get him out. Well, I think and, what the ATF or what the FBI fails to understand and what they kind of understand later is that Koresh had stockpiled the compound to withstand an apocalypse. So they have everything they need. Well, and they weren't in a traditional hostage negotiation situation. They needed somebody who was like a biblical expert. They needed somebody on the phone with him who was like an expert in revelation. Like the FBI is not trained to talk to somebody who thinks that they're bringing on the end of the world. I mean, nobody is really trained for that, but like they didn't know who they were dealing with or what they were dealing with. So one of the fears, they, they start to get a, an idea of how many children are in there. And one of the fears is that if this goes much longer or the FBI pushes or anything, they're going to kill the children and the adults are going to take their own lives. And they, which is essentially what happened. And they want to stop that from happening. So on April 18th, Janet Reno, she's the attorney general. She approves an assault using tear gas. So early on the morning. Well, and for in the 51 days though, leading up to it, they'd tried everything to flush them out, to flush them out of the compound. They were playing sirens uh, war sounds like really psychological torture, trying to keep them up all night long. They would play Nancy Sinatra's that boots song mm-hmm. over and over and over trying to drive them nuts mm-hmm. for 51 days. And so finally it is approved to do like this final siege of the compound. And they, um, are authorized to use tear gas to try to flush out the members of the compound. Okay, but what, so this is at 6am in the morning on April 19th. What did they use to fire the tear gas in? Like a rocket launcher or something, didn't they? Like a no, that's Bradley tanks. Tanks, tanks. Yeah. They bring these big like ass insane. Bradley tanks well, up. And, oh yeah, when they bring the tanks in and they like launch them in, you know, the this tear gas, they run over the phone line, and so mm-hmm. they are cut off from their constant communication that they were having crush up until that point. And they warned them. They said, "We're coming in with tear gas. Everybody, come out." You're under arrest. Like, let's just end this now. Well, that's not going to work. And they have, like you said, he's preparing for an apocalyptic scenario. They have gas masks in there. Not for children, but not for the children. That was so sad. Like the kids didn't have them. You can always make more children. Oh my God. I know. That's kind of the, that was the thought process. I I think that's the thought process. So after Four and a half, almost five hours. No, more than five hours. The FBI runs out of tear gas canisters. Because they, and they're not coming out. Mm -hmm. So what happens next, I think is a point of contention and what we're uncertain about, but a fire starts. And I think that it's unclear. So people in the militia movement will say the FBI starts this fire. There's been no concrete evidence that that's actually what takes place. This looks like somebody in the compound themselves set this fire. Well, think of how flammable things were at that moment with all that tear gas flooding through there. It could have been something as simple as someone lighting a cigarette. Yeah. 
Um, the fire erupts at noon. And just a few minutes later, you get nine Davidians kind of escape. Um, and there's sporadic forms of gunfire, but this fire rapidly consumes the compound. So what do we know? What's the aftermath? Koresh is dead with a gunshot to the head. Once again, like a Jim Jones situation. Mm-hmm. He knows what's coming. Um, at least 80 of his followers, including 22 children, are dead. Oh, the kids. It just breaks my heart. And at this point, you know, you you have had some members manage to escape, but the vast majority have died. Now, what comes out of this for for FBI reform is kind of interesting because they do kind of change the way they will perform assaults like this in the future. There is kind of a decision that maybe to not use tear gas grenades the way that they used. Maybe not. Um, Because they, and here's where the FBI admits, maybe one of these could have set a fire that was very slow burning initially because tear gas grenades do have incendiary properties. Yeah, of course. So they do change that. But it just, it's interesting for a number of things because I think it has a real continuity with Jim Jones and cults from the 60s. It has a real continuity with 19th century utopian communities and cults we've talked about. But it also connects to the modern militia movement, including groups like proud boys the there was what's that the other siege one? that happened what's too. the other oh yeah um ruby ridge right i mean so if ruby ridge and waco play into timothy mcveigh's yeah. he says both of these things are kind of what what's the idea of like government overreach and needing to arm yourself mm-hmm. against the government like like you're saying these malicious sort of movements and we did we kind of pinned when we're talking about conspiracy theories in a in a past episode we kind of pinned this moment as being like this is the advent of the modern right-wing conspiracy theorist. And I, I was like, when you said that, a bell went off for me. I was like, yeah, that makes so much sense. It really does. And, you know, it's also, we're talking about religion and we need to get into it more. I mean, we're turning into like a religion podcast, but like this has to do with a lot of the evangelicalism that comes out of the eighties and these non-denominational mm-hmm. sects and all these different, like, communities that crop up that are get more and more and more conservative and that they all think that they're living literally in the end times they think they're about to be raptured any second um and it plays into all of this and it and it plays in very much to the things that your crazy aunt is posting on facebook right now right i mean it all kind of connects together and it's interesting to me to kind of pin this moment and why like most people didn't know anything about the Branch Davidians. They did know about them after the 51-day siege, but you do start to see these really um, clear connections between the rise of evangelicalism and right-wing conservatism that comes out of the 80s and then just like reaches this fever pitch in the 90s, but it's still kind of going strong today. Um, it, It comes up in different forms, but it's definitely connected. So today, if you go to Waco, if you go to outskirts of Waco, there's a park. In memorial of the children, I hope. Poor kids. Kind of, but it kind of, the memorial makes it, really puts the blame at the feet of the government. So I'm a little conflicted on here, to be honest. Like, I think that the ATF went in completely underprepared. And I think that their excuse for going in was not valid. I think that they, this cult obviously needed to be broken up and the rampant sexual abuse that was taking place was just awful. I mean, and I'm, and I think that that needed to be addressed, but like their reasoning for going in and like this one specific agency's reasoning for going in, like they just weren't prepared. And then another agency has to come get involved and they also weren't prepared. Like they didn't know what they were dealing with here. And I think that a lot of kids lost their lives um, unnecessarily. 
Do you think there's any way those kids could have been brought out alive, though? I think, you know, like, I don't want to get into, like, defund the police, but, like, what if social workers had showed up? Not armed. Fact, completely well, unarmed, I right? I mean. Right. I th- I think your fat, your what you said earlier about they needed somebody who kind of had experience with these religious groups. I think that was a big problem. But going in armed to the teeth, banging down doors, mil- completely well, militarized, told, opening fire. T- right. Um, <sighs> Ruby Ridge had happened about a year prior to this. And I think the ATF and the FBI were very much on edge after Ruby Ridge, which was much smaller and not religious at all. It had to do with other things. Um, But I think they were on edge. And I think that they, once they were told it was an apocalyptic cult and they had massive amounts of firearms and ammunition, I think they went in expecting a gunfight. And I don't. Well, and they got it. it. it, it was a catastrophic failure on the government's part, definitely. But I don't think a lot of times people use it and they kind of let Koresh and the other adults there escape any blame. No, and that's not what I'm getting at at all. I mean, because I think that these adults needed to be apprehended. This man was vile. He's he vile. was a predator. Absolutely. A predator, vile, uh, brainwashing all these people, sexually assaulting the women and the children and all that. Absolutely. But they weren't going in for that. The ATF, that was not their intention. Their intention was like, well, he's, he's making guns. Like, okay, that's not really the issue here. Like, that to me, that's like way down on the list of issues that's happening with the Branch Davidians. And I almost think that they weren't aware of all of this. I think it's really possible that they actually weren't even aware of how bad it was there and what was actually going on there. Um, and they did. They went in unprepared and hadn't done their research. Um, and I think that this is what happens in a lot of conflicts we get involved in, in the United States at home and abroad. You know, we get involved and we think that, well, firepower is going to take care of it. It's like it's it's not that it, these people were ready and willing to die for their cause. It's not guns right. that are going to solve this. Well, and this is the thing. I think when you're dealing with cults, it, it, logic goes out the window. Right. So, speaking of illogical movements. Speaking of illogical. Let's set the Wayback Machine to the arrival of a comet. Oh, yeah. Hail Bop. See, and this is where I would have played my space music. This is good space music time. But what I learned when diving deep into this is this cult, the Heaven's Gate religious cult, ends in 1997 with a mass suicide outside of san diego but it starts way before that and i didn't know that i was a little shocked i didn't know that surprised yeah it goes back to the 1970s and this cult this group pretty much flies under the radar for the most part but they have quite a few followers at any given time and they're just going around like living very much like in the wake of this hippie movement, there's a lot of people who were involved. Marshall Applewhite. Marshall Applewhite is one of the leaders. It, but He's so weird. His He's videos, so like they they totally drew me in. Like I watched so many documentaries and videos. Have you, been, have you been indoctrinated into Heaven's Gate? No, but like there's something about his eyes though when you're watching him. Like, you know what I'm saying? Where it's like he's yes. really like mystical so, or it- captivating. And some of the flyers their group creates are just so fantastic. Like, we'll talk about the beliefs in a minute, but I mean, so UFOs figure into this. Um, Extraterrestrials. Nike shoes. If you like Nike, aliens, video games, and Star Trek. Come join us. And Christianity, kind of. Yes. It's as Christian as what David Koresh was doing. They call it UFOlogy. Uh-huh. UFOlogy. New Age Christian. But it's very Christian millennialism, right? Like like they're waiting for uh this new dawn of time that you know signals like a new era in Christianity because Marshall Applewhite was Christian. Yes. And he worked 
at a Christian school in Houston, right? He was a professor at St. Thomas mm -hmm. into the 1960s and was fired because he was caught to be having a sexual relationship with a male student. He was married. That didn't end well. Um, but his beginnings are really interesting. And so what I also find fascinating about this cult, and I said it before, is like the leadership is shared. It's a shared leadership between a man and a woman. And so it's Marshall Applewhite is the man and Bonnie Nettles is the woman. And they are not in a relationship. They meet one another at a psychiatric ward where she's a nurse. <laughs> You're laughing, but it's true. Um, and they get together and they kind of just like think that they're destined for one another. They rename themselves T and Doe. Um, and they go on this spiritual discovery kind of a thing. And it's very clear at this point that Marshall Applewhite, he's gay. He's not, he's not interested in Bonnie Nettles sexually because he's not a heterosexual man. Um, and I, I don't know what's going on with her sexuality, but like, they're not sexually interested in each other. And that fascinates me. Like these two people, a man and a woman are in charge of this cult and they found this movement and they lead it together and their partnership is non-sexual. And I, I'm, I don't know why that like blows my mind, but it does. Um, and so they call themselves T and Doe and they consider themselves as the two witnesses of revelation. So this is also connected to David Koresh, um, in the way that they, they think they're literally living in end times and that T and Doe being the witnesses to revelation that they're supposed to bring on like the second coming of Christ, but then layer onto that, that it's actually extraterrestrial. It's actually aliens and UFOs <laughs> that are connected to this. And, um, I don't know. I think that's where it takes a, a very different turn. These people are all going to commit suicide eventually. <laughs> uh, but not but one of the leaders. She dies of cancer before. And that, that, totally changes the group. Sorry, go ahead. Um, you used, there was a period where you could actually go visit the house where this happened. Yes. You said that and you took long time, people to visit so it. So this is ranch. So this, well, you can only go see where it used to be. You can't actually see the house. Um, so it's in Rancho Santa Fe. The, so it used to be on a street called Colina Norte in Rancho Santa Fe. Um, and after 97, nobody would buy this house and it became like the cheapest house in Rancho Santa Fe. It was a 9,200 square foot, seven bedroom house and they could not sell it. Would um, you buy that house? Um, well, eventually the neighborhood buys it, bulldozes it and has a new house constructed and changes the name of the street from Colina Norte to Paseo Victoria. So you can't even use the old address to find it, but you can go and you can go see the house that's there today. Um, I don't know. A cheap house is a cheap house. They were renting the house. California. They didn't own it. Well, yeah. And the owner actually had lost, he later lost the mansion in foreclosure. They were paying cash, $7,000 a month cash mm -hmm. to live in this house. What has Are always- expenses? So what perplexed me about this group, and I dug and dug and dug trying to figure it out, like, how are they making money? How mm -hmm. do you get $7,000 a month? But then if you look at the number of people who lived at the house, you have 39 members of the group mm -hmm. who live there. So you have 39 people living in one house. Seven and the rent is $7,000 a month. You're looking about 180 bucks a pop. You could scrounge up 180 bucks. What I found, though, is that one of their major sources of income, and get, this is going to crack you up, they're website designers. Look at their website. Very, very 1990s website designers. But they look at their website. It's like, oh, man, I wouldn't hire them to be my so website let's, designer. Let's talk a little bit about what they believe. So what did, so what did the Heaven's Gate members believe? <sighs> It's, it's a lot. Um, they believed that your body 
was just your vessel going through life, like your like your meat suit that you were wearing through life. Um, and that they, they had biblical connections, but they thought that they read the Bible through the lens of aliens or like extraterrestrial, uh, involvement in human history. Um, they thought that they were going to be transformed into aliens if they reached a certain peak of, I guess, um, spiritual enlightenment. And so because of that, they tried to give up all earthly pleasures and, uh, you know, connections. Many of them cut off, were cut off from their families. Um, they were not involved in relationships. They weren't allowed to be involved in relationships. Um, they stopped any sort of sexual contact or, um, even, even masturbation, like it was all just banned as like an earthly pleasure in an attempt to reach the spiritual enlightenment, thinking that they were going to be transformed into extraterrestrial beings. And they thought that a spaceship was going to come down to earth once they reached this level of enlightenment and take them away. And that they were to the real, to the good. Right. And they aliens. would call that the next level. Because there are bad aliens as well, Luciferians. Right. So God, as every religion understands it on Earth, is actually a member of these evil aliens called the Luciferians. And they've, like, saddled us with bodies that give us carnal pleasure. And we spend all our time focused on carnal pleasure, and we don't try to go to the next level. And we need to ascend to this next level. And in order to do that, you have to give up all sorts of human pleasure or characteristics of humanity, like, you know, family, friends, sex. So do you know how they say Jesus faked his miracles? How did Jesus fake his miracles? Holograms. Okay. Well, because he was an alien, right? Because he was a Luciferian. So. Um, (laughs) This, here's the thing. When we do our Scientology episode, sounds a lot like Scientology. It's pretty similar. I mean. There are a lot of similarities, and I, I I think that there's sometimes overlap between these groups. And there is anxiety. I read this whole thing about there is a growing anxiety that at what point does Scientology turn to a belief system that we actually start to worry these people are willing to kill themselves? Well, I'm already if worried. their leader... T- tells right i'm already worried it's there's so much similarity here right this and this whole kind of anytime a belief system calls for you to actively reject your physical body and embrace your true spiritual self and don't be worried what happens to your physical body well and so in this group they called their physical bodies a vehicle that's what they called it like oh and so when one of the leaders died when bonnie nettles dies um they say that she left her vehicle and this sends them into complete existential crisis because Mm -hmm. it rocks the core belief that they're going to be rescued or taken away by this alien group force. Like, wait a minute, she died of cancer. How can her, how can her body have, how can her spirit have been taken when she didn't? Cause they thought they were like literally going to transform into aliens. And so, yeah, the tela. The tell-all, we're going to pick them up. Right. And so when this woman dies of basically natural causes, right? I mean, she, it sends them into this complete tailspin where everything that they had been teaching for close to 20 years gets kind of turned on its head. And so Marshall Applewhite starts taking new ideas and it gets even nuttier. And he's explaining that, okay, she left her vehicle and actually she was taken by the aliens and she's on the spacecraft and she's going to come pick all of us up when the time mm-hmm. is right. So they end up coming up with this, these ideas that there are four ways that you can get to the next level. And this is where this intersects with Waco, surprisingly enough. The first way is the Tela aliens just come pick you up directly. And then their spacecraft. Right. The second is Bonnie Nettles. Natural death, accidental death, or death from random violence. You can also graduate to the next level that way. Third, and this is 
the branch to the branch Davidians. If you are persecuted and killed as a result of that persecution, like the branch Davidians, like Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge. So, I mean, I think this is, they're all paying attention to what's going on to other cults. Right. And so if that happens to you, then you get to the next level. And then finally, the fourth method, which is actually the method 39, is it 39 of them use? Right. Is the, is the suicide 39. Willful exit via a dignified manner. The dignified manner is so interesting because it was very ceremonial the way that they went out. Um, but what's, what's interesting too, is like, this is very evangelical because what they're describing is a rapture. Mm -hmm. They're taking so many different ideas from evangelical Christianity, but then just saying alien, alien, alien about it, right? Like the whole Mm -hmm. idea of the rapture in for evangelicals is, is basically this, like all of a sudden one day you're just going to get zapped and your body's just going to be laying there and you're going to get taken away and not everybody's going to get raptured. All the evil people are going to stay behind. Only these special people who have ascended to this level, like this next level is what they're saying. They're the ones who are going to be raptured. And so to me, there's this huge connection between evangelical Christianity and Heaven's Gate. It's very, very similar theology, very similar belief system. And, you know, it's easy to say like, oh, ha, 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 because they say UFOs. But really, what's the difference between a, a a common discussion that happens all the time in churches across the, <laughs> across the country to this day of rapture, it's the same concept. So they're, so they are looking for a sign that it is time for them to exit in it in a dignified manner. And this is where it intersects with Hale-Bopp comet. So 1995 astronomers discover this previously unknown comet, Hale-Bopp. And, they kind of do some modeling and figure out it's going to come closest to earth on April 1st, 1997. And it was visible for over a year and a half. Yeah, you could look up in the night sky and see it to the naked eye. You could see hail. And then this rumor starts to circulate that there mm-hmm. is an object in the wake of the comet, that there is something that is following it in the tail of the comet. And so this group says, ah, that's the spacecraft. That's Bonnie Nettles. She's coming to get us. Was she T or was she Doe? I, I can't remember. I think she might have been Doe. I don't know. She, uh, I'm saying knows? Bonnie Nettles instead because I can't remember which one's T and which one's Doe. Um, so in 1996, they moved to this monastery, which is the location in Rancho Santa Fe, north of San Diego. Um, It's inland. It gets very hot there early on. This is key because when things happen, it's already pretty hot out there during the day. Oh, yeah. Great point. Um, Yikes. So, so, you know, in March of 97, Apple White records this set of videos. He's Doe, by the way. Doe's final final exit. exit. Yeah. Um, and they all take themselves. Right. And he says, this is where the spacecraft is, is the one that they are meant to with dignity, exit their bodies, their vehicles, exit their, their vehicles. Um, and he actually gets 38 other members to do this. Um, so what they did, and this is just a warning we're going to talk about people killing themselves. So if you don't want to hear that. I would think you would have turned this off a long time ago. I think you would have killed it a long time yeah. ago. But I, and I also wonder why you're listening to a cult episode. But um, they took phenobarbital mixed with applesauce. Or pudding. Or pudding. Washed it down with vodka. They, they, also, they also put plastic bags on their head. Well, and they went out in phases. Which was very mm-hmm. interesting. It wasn't a it wasn't a mass suicide all at the same time. There were people who were kind of overlooking the process and just like a couple would like do Jim it at Jones a time. Kool-Aid stuff. Yeah. And well they I think had it's the Jim Jones Kool-Aid. They had all the same outfits on, they had all the same Nikes, and they asked why did they have these Nikes? Because they got a good deal on them. 
Um, mm-hmm. Marshall Applewhite was very frugal, and they found they got this good deal. And Nike actually, and they all had their hair. They all had their hair company. trimmed. They all had five dollars and seventy five cents in coins in their pockets for passage. I don't know why it cost five dollars. And then they had the seventy five cents to use payphones to call home, and that blows my mind too. Because it's like if you're on an extraterrestrial spacecraft, like I doubt there's a payphone, but that was the idea. And so it was very ritualistic. And they put plastic bags over their head. And then as soon as they asphyxiated, the members who were still alive removed the plastic bags, put a purple cloth over their heads, and then kind of arranged their bodies in a dignified sort of manner. And they all went out in phases. And the last two people to go, when they were found, they still had the plastic bag on their head with no purple cloth over their heads because there was nobody there to attend to their suicides. So... They were in bunk beds too, which... And bunk beds. So it is a while before these bodies are discovered. And they're discovered because the Doe's final exit that was um, taped and all the members' final like exit interviews, so to speak, were mailed to a former member who had left. He said he kind of had a weird feeling a couple of months prior to the suicide. He left the cult. They mailed it to him and he became kind of um, the gatekeeper to this. He goes to the house, walks in. Obviously, it smells putrid. He finds everybody dead. Yep, sure enough, they they, they killed themselves. He calls in on an anonymous tip and says, hey, there's 39 people dead at this house. You may want to come check it out. But it does. It takes the amount of time it takes is like they kill themselves in shifts, not all on the same day. Not all on the same day, which is wild. Like, if you think about it, they're, like, living their lives, you know, like. And these people are dying in shifts, so to speak. I don't know. It's it's crazy. Um, well, and this is the thing. It's I feel bad for the astronomers who discovered Hale-Bopp because. Yeah, they're just Alan like, hey, Hale, wait. For the next set of years, that's all he gets asked is about this cult. And it's like, you know, I have nothing to do with them, right? Like. um. So what's the aftermath? Nike pulls the shoes that they Did were you wearing. know if you can find a pair of those, they're worth like thousands of dollars? Like I think they go for like eight, nine thousand dollars for a pair of those because Nike discontinued them. But the aftermath too is there were two members who did not participate in the mass suicide, but they ended up killing themselves later. And they said, like, hey, we should have done this. And they tried to do it in a similar manner. Um, they went to a mm-hmm. hotel room. One of them wasn't successful. Um, and then he killed himself the following year. I mean, there were still members who were very much like, oh, this is what I should have done. I, I, you know, I hope I can still get on the UFO ride. I hope they're still like going to come get me. So there are, <laughs> so both the cults we talked about today, there are recent documentaries or drama or I think Waco is not necessarily a documentary. It's more kind of a drama reenactment series. It's on Netflix. Okay. Uh, You've got uh, Heaven's Gate, The Cult of Cults. Mm -hmm. That's what I watched on HBO. And then you've got on Netflix, Waco, which is about the Branch Davidians. Uh, And you can find kind of other documentaries out there as well. But what's interesting is... Both of them are kind of millennial movements because remember, this is all leading up to 1999 and I think there was, you know, there was an atmosphere of people thinking something momentous or catastrophic is going to happen. Um, and I, what I find interesting is sex plays a part in the the uh, Heaven's Gate. I'm so glad you brought but it's this in a up. Very, but it's in a very unexpected way. Yeah. It's in the opposite of everything we've been talking about. I'm glad we can get to it. So they're not a cult. So they're no, not a cult. No, I'm not. No, I'm just, it's interesting <laughs> though, isn't it? But it, no, I guess it, it is though, because it's a control. I mean, it, it it's still, even though mm. they're abstaining from sex, there is heavy control over sex and sexual thoughts, sexual activity. Um, and one of the things that I just, my mind was absolutely blown is several of the members were concerned that they were becoming aroused against their will. 
at a certain point. Prior to Luciferians. Yeah, well, prior to the suicides, obviously. Like the, and that's the other thing. Like, this cult had been going on for, like, nigh on 30 years or close to it, right? Um, and so they, they kind of get together, the men in the group, they're just like, you know, gosh, I keep getting aroused and I don't want to be, and I, you know, I, I don't like this. I don't want to do it. And so, um, Doe, the leader, uh, says like, well, let's castrate ourselves. I'm like, yeah, let's castrate ourselves. They castrated themselves. The members of the group performed castrations on one another with no drugs and they did it once and like it went really bad the first one that they did was really bad and they freaked out and they're like well we can't take him to the hospital like we're gonna get in trouble for like performing this surgery on this guy they went and threw his testicles over a bridge into a river We're like, we got to get rid of the evidence. And like, this guy's like bleeding out and like screaming and like, oh my God, the the description of it was so horrifying. And then the rest of them were like, well, I guess we shouldn't castrate ourselves then. Then they end up going to Mexico and finding a doctor who will castrate them. And I think not all of them did it, but there were a handful of people, one of them being Marshall Applewhite, who were castrated. Mm -hmm. I was just blown away by that and again like thinking about sex in terms of the other cults this is just a very different mode of control well so i love me some science fiction sure these people take it these people take it to an extreme well it's not fiction anymore it's not well that's but i think their their ability to distinguish fiction from reality is not there um, and again, it's this, I mean, that's the thing is Applewhite is this charismatic leader, but in a very different way than Koresh and Jim Jones, um, and Charles Manson, right? It's, yeah. it's charismatic in this kind of weirdo nerd way. Nerd way. Well, they also, they're really, um, controlling of the types of media that the members consume. And so mm-hmm. there was an approved list of movies that they could watch, books they could read. Um, and they were really into Star Trek. And when they had movie night, because there were like Nishol, uh Uhuru's brother was, was one of the one people, of the who, people killed who killed. Yeah, so that's really interesting, right? Um, and also another ethnically diverse group, the Heaven's Gate cult. Um, but when they would have movie night, like they would all have to sit in specific seats. Like it was very control. Um, you know, it was just a lot of control over them. If They spoke to somebody outside of the group. If they did call a family member, somebody else would pick up on the other line and listen to what they were saying. Um, So there was just a lot of control exercised over all the members in every single realm. Um, And in any way that they were trying to seek any sort of external pleasure was heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an ascetic movement. Right. The 1990s. Wild. Wow. Wild. I do um, have a memory of this. This is one of my earlier memories as a kid, seeing the footage. I mean, I remember seeing the news. Especially as a San Diego. As a San Diego. It was huge. I mean, it was all over the news. I remember seeing the bunk beds and there would always be clips of like the Nikes. Like this was pretty seared into my mind. And so when I went to do my own research on it. And I find out like, whoa, this thing was founded in the 1970s and it could have been kind of like flying under the radar for this amount of time. Like it was very interesting to me because it's kind of, it's kind of a um, connection between the hippie groups and the hippie movements that are going on in the sixties and seventies. And then like the more crazier, like the, I don't know what's the crazy, the evangelical movements that happen in the eighties and the nineties, like there's a, there's a mix there and it kind of like overlaps both. And so you get a lot of like mysticism, um, science fictiony kind of, you know, let's ascend to the next level spirituality mixed in with some of this like biblical prophecy and revelation. And it just boom, creates this heaven's gate cult. And it's fascinating to me that it kind of, it it juggles both sides of that in really interesting ways. Do you want me to buy you a pair of Heaven's Gate Nikes? 
If you can find me a pair of Heaven's Gate Nikes, I would take them. Size 8, please. Uh, Do they have them in women's sizes? Oh, man. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So next week we leave cults and we move to religion. Are we sure we're leaving cults? Sorry. I mean, I think it's, again, I... uh, I think one of the challenges for us when we talk about Mormon starting next week is there is, they are vilified by people around them, their contemporaries rapidly and kind of subsequently chased out of persecuted, areas. persecuted, persecuted, persecuted. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to, and it's interesting. I, I think what's interesting is they're one of the groups that comes out of the second grade awakening and they're kind of vilified for a long time. Whereas there are other groups that come out of the second great awakening that are kind of celebrated very rapidly. Yes. And I, I would say that they're kind of a threat, I think to a lot of, I think they, they're very they threatening are. to a lot of, um, to a lot of people. So I, I want to give a reading assignment to anybody who's listening. Um, I would recommend in preparation for our episode next week, for you to read Under the Banner of Heaven by John Krakauer. It's about Mormons and it's one of the better books I've read. Um, And there's even, there's a chapter on Elizabeth Smart, which is really interesting. Um, But, you know, if you're interested in this, I would, I would recommend, and I'm going to bust it out again in preparation for our discussion, but there's a lot to cover. And I think we're going to have a multi-part series on that. Well, I'm going to read some old stuff from grad school. We, we, we read, read some together. good stuff, huh? We did on the Mormons. Um, we really did. Um, I might even contact a, an old colleague of ours and ask her for a little input. Um, she might have a lot to say about it. She might have a lot to say. Yeah. Um, anyways, this has been great. Um, we're not too far over an hour. No, we're good. We did a good job. <laughs> I think we could have talked a lot more about both of these oh, groups. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, thanks for joining us. Um I'm Jeff. And I'm Hillary. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.